My name is Malka Barron. Now, I was Mela Klin in Częstochowa, in a city of Poland, where I lived with my parents from the age of one year. My father was a printer, had a printer's shop, and worked there with a helper. My mother was a housewife. We were two children. I was actually born in Warsaw, and my entire mother's family lived in Warsaw, and that's where they perished. You're listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. Malka Barron was born on January 30, 1927, and grew up with her younger brother in a middle-class household. Malka attended a private Jewish school thanks to a discount secured by her aunt, who worked there as a secretary. But Malka's formal education ended with the German invasion of Poland when she was 12 years old. It is now May 21, 1990, and Malka is sharing her recollections with interviewers Judith Jung and Sandra Rosenstock at a community center in Forest Hills, Queens, in New York City. She's wearing a wine-colored dress with a pearl necklace and matching earrings. As she speaks, Malka gestures gently with her hands. She remembers the day the Nazis invaded. I remember hiding in a cellar, and we were very, very quiet as the German troops were entering the city. And a baby started crying, and there was a candle on the windowsill. The windows were closed. In order for the Germans not to hear the baby cry, the mother was stifling the baby. And then a candle burnt, went out, and people were beginning to say that there was no air. Obviously, we could not stay anymore, and we ran somewhere. And the next thing, I remember that things calmed down when the Germans took over, because they always did it very slowly and slyly and uh, gradually. and. Slowly, the other signs were beginning to appear. My father's printer's shop was closed. The Germans took over the machinery. Uh, my school was closed after a while, so we could not go to school anymore. So our teachers decided to continue education in their homes. So I remember we walked in small groups to their homes for further instructions. Then slowly one teacher disappeared, we didn't know where. Our doctors disappeared, we didn't know where. It was all hushed, maybe because I was a child then, but maybe also people really didn't know. It was very gradually done. Intelligentsia, as we call it, intelligentsia, were slowly disappearing from the city. The next thing I remember was the first uh, selectia, which is uh, selection. I don't know what the term is really. It happened very early in the morning. Very early, my parents woke us up and with hushed voices told us quickly to dress ourselves with whatever layers we could take because we are leaving home. And when I went to the window, I saw German 
uh, assessment standing all along the street across the windows and not a, another soul outside. And there was a very harsh knock on the door. The door burst open. Assessment came in with rifles, out, 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 in German, and we were forced out. We, I never saw my home anymore after that. We were taken out into the street very fast, very loud. Another girl, young girl who lived with us, who helped my mother, uh, also was taken. And they arranged this quickly with rifles in fives, and five and five and five, and all my neighbors were coming out of the houses and uh, apartments and fives and fives and fives were arranged that way and marched forward. And we came to a certain spot where the Germans separated people. My mother and the girl who worked with her were to one side. My father and my brother and I to the other side. At that point my father wanted to run to my mother to go with her. Well, they hit him with a gun and not killed him, just hit him, pushed him away, and he went back to us. My father and I and my brother remained together for a while. The Germans sent my brother and my father to work on a railroad track. They sent us to work somewhere else. Every day we returned to the same place where they stationed us. And one day, my father and brother did not return. Um, the next thing I remember is being taken to concentration camp with all the other Jews who were marching, marching, marching. We were brought to a certain place. It was a labor camp in Częstochowa, somewhere on the outskirts of the city. And what we did was we, they were bringing shells from anti-aircraft guns or ammunition. And the shells that were destroyed or partially destroyed or bent were restored in that factory. So actually what we were doing is restoring the anti-aircraft shells to fill them with ammunition again to, to, bomb to, bombard, to, to shell against the aircraft that is coming. I was 15 and I was one of the youngest in camp. Soon after we came to camp, mm -hmm. at night we heard a baby crying and I thought that we're probably losing our mind because all children were killed. And now indeed we heard a child crying and one of us went after the sound and she found a bundle out of the window of the barrack on, on the roof. And they, we took the baby in and some short time after that a woman was brought to our barrack and she looked to us very distressed, very not all together. But when the baby saw that woman, he stretched his arm to her. So we knew that this was the mother, although she did not acknowledge that. She was probably afraid that we'll betray her. But after a while, things calmed down. The baby was maybe two years old, two and a half at that time, and was a little boy, David. What we trained him to do, which was very, very interesting, the mother stayed to take care of the barracks, to sweep, to clean. We all were taken to work. Every morning there was count outside. Every night when we came back, they counted us again. Sometimes we worked on the daytime uh, shift, sometimes at night. David was trained that when we go out to count, to be counted, he's under those boards and the barrack and quietly, so that in case a German would come to peek, 
nobody should notice him. And that way, and, and then when we came from work and everything was fine, he was coming out and playing with us. And I played with him, and I think he, I survived by my sanity because of this child. I told him stories, I sang to him, I played with him. It was a little bit of sunshine in my life then. Uh, eventually, uh, there were two young girls, myself and another young girl. The other girl and I both contracted a terrible disease of furunculosis, it's called. Those were wounds on the body because of blood infection. So you got pus everywhere, and it was itching terribly. It was very, very uncomfortable and contagious. I remember I, would, I wanted to die. I didn't have any, any reason or need or will to continue living. My, my wounds were burning and itching and I was paused. Paz was on my breast, paz was on my ankles, paz was on my uh, heels and hands everywhere. The other girl had it even worse, if it can be worse. One morning the Germans took her out and shot her. The, I don't know, next morning or the same day, I don't remember the time, I was really very, very much not there. Just superficially, I was doing everything, inside and out. Uh, somebody whisked me away from the barrack when the girl was shot. He took me out from that hall where I worked and put me into a special barrack. And all around me, there were people with typhoid, prisoners who were dying, prisoners already dead. They bandaged me from head to toe. They started to inject or take out blood from one, my spot where the blood was maybe more not affected and inject again. Somehow they saved my life. That's another miracle. I, don't, I was sick, I was starved, I was uh, emotionally passive. When people ask me, what did you do to survive? What did you do to, I, I, I can only say nothing, absolutely nothing. It was just as though someone was leading me and by either by will of God or just coincidence, I survived. Um, those wounds became better, but I got typhoid on top of everything. So I, I remember that they shaved my head. Uh, I survived that too. I returned to work, and on one morning, very shortly before 45, um, when we were counted outside one morning, the Gestapo, who was uh, a very mean, lame uh, German counted us and told us to stay and entered the room. And that was at an unusual time and we knew that little David did not hide. That was like accounting that did not uh, occur in the morning or at night, but very unusual time. And we knew that somebody, either he found out or somebody told him or because he went straight into the barrack. We were frozen, standing there, not moving, and we, I just knew that he would take him out and shoot him. And here comes out that man, lame, on his bicycle, and takes the child to the bicycle, puts the child on the bicycle, and moves away on the bicycle. He didn't dismiss us, but we wouldn't move anyway. We're all waiting for the shot. And there comes another miracle. He comes back with the child, tells him to go into the barrack, and tells us to be dismissed. 
and goes away. And maybe he knew already that the Russians are coming, that the Germans are leaving. I don't remember the span of time between that and the end, but I know it was toward the end. Anyway, the child was returned, and the child survived. And he stayed in Poland with his mother, became a doctor, and then we lost track. I don't know what happened to him, but he survived. Shortly after that, in the hall where we worked, something unusual occurred. All the Germans who were watching us all of a sudden left the hall altogether, and we were remaining, we remained all by ourselves. And they didn't come back. And all of a sudden, a young Jewish man ran into the hall, opened the doors, and told us, come out, come out, we are free. The Russians are here, the Germans are running away. And we stood there, and we could not move. It, we were so conditioned and so uh, completely without our own will or determination or, or energy or taking steps towards that, we stood there. That was the first time that I cried, the very first time. I didn't cry in camp, I didn't cry. I don't remember ever crying during all this time. We walked out of that camp. My friends, there were four girls and a mother and myself that lived on the same, slept on the same board in the camp. Uh, we ran out into the city and we heard some shooting still and we saw Russians on tanks rolling in on the streets of the city. So the girls again decided, I was always passive during that time, let's run into the basement to our house, to one of the buildings, because it may not be safe, they're still shooting, and let's wait, that was toward the evening, let's wait overnight. And so we did, we ran into one of the buildings, a tall building, into the basement, we stayed there overnight. When everything calmed down and was quiet, we ventured out. And as we walked out, we saw our own city, unbelievably strange and abnormal to us. And we found an empty apartment in the same building where we were hiding, and we occupied that apartment. During that time, the Russian army occupied certain buildings around that building. And somehow, I don't remember how, we met a soldier who was not really a soldier. He was older than most people. He was a watchman, and he was repairing watches for the soldiers and officers. So that man met some of us because he heard we're Jewish, and he was Jewish, very obviously Jewish. And as we learned to know him, he brought us some food, he brought us some shirts to change. He began to show signs that he wants to help. The man tried to make us understand that he wants to take one of us back home to Leningrad where he, had, where he had a daughter our age and a wife, and he wants to save a Jewish person. Well, he picked me, and again, I could not make any decisions yet. I was very passive, but my friends, who took care of me always, decided that it's a wonderful, brilliant idea that I'll gain a family again and he was really a very kind, very simple man, not really sophisticated, did not understand the workings of the war rules and army. He only knew that he wants to save a Jewish person. Meantime, he was moved with the army to another city, and we remained. And then one day, he sends a lieutenant with a note to me that they are stationed now not far from us, and he would like me to be transferred 
to him so he can take care of me. The girls have a council. They decide it's a wonderful idea, but I shouldn't go alone. So one of the girls decides, I'll go with you. I was 18. Uh, and my friend was maybe 19, one year older. So we decide to go with that lieutenant. If the man says, trust him, then we trust him. We go with him, and he puts us on a truck, open truck, you know, and there are soldiers sitting all around the truck, and we go there, and there is another truck behind us, maybe 16, 18 soldiers, Russian soldiers too, and we go. That was in the morning. So we travel, the soldiers sing, we travel, we sit together. They're polite, they're nice, nobody hurts us in any way. And it's beginning to darken, and it's toward the evening, and they're still going. Uh, it's already dark, and they stop at a forsaken place. There's no, like a village, bombarded, broken down, no houses, no people, just, they stop there for the night, and then we realized both Shoshanka, who's my friend, and I, that we are here at night, two young girls with 32, 34 Russian soldiers in the wilderness, nothing nowhere. And the lieutenant very nicely comes to us and says, we are stopping here for the night. There is a barn. All my people will sleep in the barn. We'll make a space for you. Please do not be afraid. It begins to rain. They are making supper outside. They are playing harmoshkas. They are singing, the soldiers. And we tell the lieutenant, we'll stay on the truck. Please leave us on the truck. He said, please come down, have some soup, warm up near the fire. No, we'll stay here. So he brings us the food to the truck, and he brings us some blankets to cover. It begins to drizzle, and we stay there. And Shoshanka, who is a very strong, tough person, and I, very meek and quiet and passive, she says to me, don't you dare to come down. We are staying here for the night. I said, of course. Um, by and by, the soldiers go into the barn. They all lie down all around. The truck is stationed nearby. The, the lieutenant comes again. Please look near the door. The door is open. There is a place for you. Please come and lay down. No. Finally, we were so drenched, and the, the trucks were open. There was nothing to protect us. And cold and tired, Shoshanka says, you know what? We'll go down. We'll lie down, but don't you dare to fall asleep. We came into the barn. Next to the door, there is a place for us. And the soldiers all lie down, and they are behaving properly. And some snore already, and some turn. And we are very watchful and very, very alert. And before we know, we fell asleep. In the middle of the night, we both jumped up. Something fell on us. So we froze, and it was quiet and we fell asleep again. In the morning we wake up, we are covered with a blanket of down, down, down blanket. I never, never forget the feeling that I had when I woke up and I realized what happened. It was like, like 100 balloons burst into the air. I think that moment restored my faith in human being after what I went through. Well, after that, life was a little bit easier. We traveled with the Russian army. We came to that man whose name was Isidore, just like my father. And he was a little bit resembling my father, too. He had a yellow, yellow hair and a small face. 
and we trusted him. And at that time, I still planned to go with him. What happened was, uh, when the war ended, we were in Austria already, in Medling, one of those little towns, and suddenly everybody shouted, the war is over, the war is over. I came out, I looked at all those Russian boys and girls dancing and singing, and this was the second time that we felt maybe we really will be free and return to life. Then another episode happened. The friend who was supposed to take us was sent back home to Leningrad, and they did not allow him to take me along. They had an excuse that, pardon? Right. They, he was sent, and he wanted to take me with him. They said, no, you cannot. We don't know whether they are spies, they are from Poland. We cannot send them to, to Leningrad now. What they had in mind, probably, to send us to Siberia. But my friend Shoshanka realized what is happening. She also heard from other people that we met in Madeline, Jewish people, that um, there is nearby a Rothschild hospital where they collect people, Jewish people from all the surroundings. So Shoshanka said, let's go. I'll ask the major, who is a Russian Jew, to give us permission to go to Vienna, to go to a consulate. I said, fine. So she obtained papers that we are allowed to leave and go to Vienna to register in the consulate, and we left them. And instead of going to Vienna, we went to the Rothschild Hospital where they had uh, immediate uh, uh, arrangements for Jews who come from anywhere to send them either to Israel or wherever, to the P-Camps first. From highest. Mm -hmm. a Rothschild Hospital was a, a, a place, a central place, from which they were sending Jews first to the P camps, displaced person camps. Mm -hmm. And from there, through highest, they sent to. So we came to Rothschild Hospital and we told them that we just escaped from Russia, from the Russian zone, and we would like them to send us immediately because we were afraid that they'll follow us or come for us somewhere. So we even didn't sleep there. Usually people stay there for a long time. They put us on a train, and the train brought us to Vekscheid, which is in Austria. And I remember sitting on that train, and the train stops, and a young man comes on the train and says, do you have a place to sleep? Strange question. I don't know. No, he said. Come with me. So we went with him. Obviously, he was a Jewish young man. He takes us to the, the P camp, to the displayed person camp, to a barrack. We stayed in that barrack. They gave us a room. Uh, and I met my husband in that camp. And I went to Israel first. He remained in, in camp. I went to Israel in 48. I arrived in Israel through papers from my relatives, sort of a proxy papers that as though I'm going to marry my cousin. He sent papers for me, and I came to Israel on an illegal aliyah. And uh, Moshe joined me in Israel later, and we married there. And then I followed him to America. And this is my story. What I wanted to say to future generations is that whenever things look terribly, terribly, terribly um, desperate to you, don't ever lose hope, because life continues, and if you survive, you can turn around, and things will be better, 
and you might not even be destroyed by very uh, terrible situations that you go through. And the life is a precious gift, and we have to treasure it. Malka Barron and her husband Moshe arrived in the United States in 1952. They settled in Borough Park, Brooklyn, where their two children were born. A few years later, they moved to Queens. Malka taught preschool at the Young Israel of Forest Hills. At night, she studied for her BA and then for her master's degree in early childhood education. She later became the director of the preschool where she taught. After Malka and Moshe retired, they moved to Pittsburgh to be near their daughter Avi and her four children. Avi followed in her mother's footsteps and runs a Jewish day school. She recalls that her mother didn't keep her past a secret. When we were children, she said, my mother answered our questions at our level, whatever we asked. But she and my father embraced life and believed that their best shot was to be as happy as they could be. My mother functioned with courage, self-discipline, joy in life, and did not obsess about the bad things that happened. Malka's grandson, Boaz, remembers a time when his grandmother referenced her wartime experiences. She was walking me home from school, he recalled, and I said that I was starving. I was nine years old. And she stopped and said, you're not starving. I was starving during the war. She didn't say it in an angry way, just in a matter-of-fact way. Malka Barron died on May 7, 2007. She was 80 years old. Her husband, Moshe, recently celebrated his 100th birthday. To learn more about Malka Barron, please visit our companion website at thosewhowerethere.org. It includes episode notes, a full transcript, and archival photographs. That's where you can also find our previous episodes, as well as background information about the Fortunoff Video Archive and the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at the Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department in New Haven, Connecticut. This second season is a co-production with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust, New York's contribution to the global responsibility to never forget. The museum is committed to the crucial mission of educating diverse visitors about Jewish life before, during, and after the Holocaust. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, the Fortunoff Archives Director Stephen Naren, and Trevor Walsh, Collections Project Manager at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Thank you to audio engineer John Gordon. Thanks as well to Christy Bailey Tomacek, Joanna Arruda, Noah Guto Ellis, and Inga Dataya for their assistance. 
And thank you to Sam Cassow for historical oversight and to photo editor Michael Green, genealogist Michael LeClerc, and our social media producers, including Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Sarah Barber. Leo Vergerbin composed our theme music. Thank you as well to Avi Baron Monroe and Boaz Monroe for providing archival photographs and background information. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening. <laughs>